Amen. I would love for you to take the Word of God and turn to Philippians chapter number 4 this morning. Philippians chapter number 4. that some of you are visiting with us first time we welcome you here to this gathering and pray that the lord will use it to minister to your hearts and souls but you may be wondering or thinking after this you came in at an awkward time <laughs> uh, in the book we're at the very last verse and we're going to spend our time closing it up this morning and begin a new exposition next week i'm in the book of jonah I'll tell you that so that you can prepare. I would encourage you to go ahead and read through the book of Jonah. It's a short, short book, but that's going to be our next endeavor. And you be in prayer that the Lord would use it. But today will be uh, the final sermon in Philippians chapter number 4 and verse number 23. And kind of try to strive to give somewhat of a perspective of the whole book by the end of, of the sermon and trust that it will be a blessing to you and that God will extend grace to us in it. So... If you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. And we'll pick our reading up there in verse number 21. But again, we preached um, those two verses last week, 21 and 22. Um, and we will finish with verse number 23 as our focus today. Um, Paul writes as he closes out this letter to the book of Philippians by the Spirit of God with these words. He says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you, all the saints greet you, but especially those of who are, those who are of Caesar's household. This is our verse, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we run to you once again. Just to be honest, Father, because we need you. As was mentioned even this morning, there seems to be a hundred reasons that we should pray. They could all be wrapped up in one, Father, and that is just our need of you. But in communion with you, Father, and we know that that's where the wellspring of life begins. That your Son purchased that. And as long as we abide in Him, and that the Spirit of God works and reigns and rules in our life, conforming us to His very image. So, Father, it seems like an impossible task to find you this morning in many ways. And yet, at the same time, we know that it's to the cross we must run. Father, that it's in your Son that there is life and life forevermore. And that, Father, by the power of your Spirit, he makes available to us all, all who will believe, um, Christ without measure. So, Father, we pray that you would show us him this morning. Father, as we come to this text and speak of grace, uh, may, may grace find its full picture in our hearts and minds in the personal work of Jesus Christ. Father, may you exalt his death. But even more than that, Father, may you exalt his resurrection. May we know this morning that he is at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning forevermore, that we do not serve a deceased Savior, but that he is bought out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, a people for himself in whom he lives in and lives through and by the power of the Spirit, Father. And this is a small representation of that. So, Lord, make him known to even my own heart this morning. Father, you know there is nothing hidden from you. And I could hide so many things, Father, from the congregation this morning. But you know the secrets of my heart. And you know exactly, Father, what I need. And you know that in some sense I feel incapable this morning. Father, as if the task was before me to jump out of a plane and fly. Father, it worries me. Yet at the same time, I know, Father, that if you've told me that it can be, that it's possible, that we can do all these things in Christ, and you'll meet me there. And I pray that you'll do the same for the people. Father, every single person and that is under the sound of my voice, and that you would accomplish your purpose in their hearts this morning, Father. That you would go with the word by the power of your spirit and conform them to the very image of Christ. That at the end of our gathering, Father, we can say Christ met with us. And that some treasure was laid up in heaven that will echo all throughout eternity, Father. And that when we met, we met for a reason. And that reason was for you. And much was accomplished, Father. So to produce joy in our hearts, Father. Love and holiness and, and a whole host of other 
um, affections, attributes, and activities as a result of Christ walking among the candlesticks this morning, trimming the wicks, Father, filling the oil, up, um, upholding the, the downcast and the discouraged, Father, encouraging the bold to be even more courage, Father, um, instructing the, the, those that are without, Father, and encouraging those that are with. Father, we desire more than anything this morning and to honor you, to revere you, Father, and to rejoice in you and your Son. So, Father, um, go with us now to your word and help us to accomplish that very end. If it be your will, Father, it is ours. It is our utmost desire, Father, that if there be a saint, if there be a saint here that needs you, that you would go to them. Father, see me even more in my own heart, that if there's a sinner here that doesn't know Christ, that, Father, Christ would be displayed in such a fashion. Um, they would see the love of God on their behalf. And that they would run to Him this morning, Father. Be born again, birthed into the very family of God. Father, from the littlest to the oldest, show us our hearts this morning, Father. Help us to examine ourselves, whether we even be in the faith. And, Father, um, take it and use it to your end in this text, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much for standing. As mentioned, we now come to completely close the letter from Paul to Philippi, um, at least insofar as this congregation and the preaching um, that we've encountered over the past several six to eight, eight months. But I pray that it wouldn't be the end of your trek through the book of Philippians, that it would be, um, although a long journey, one that you will revisit uh, frequently more than just on occasion what a blessing it has been I pray to you um, as much as it has been to me um, I have no true creativity this morning as it comes with an introduction um, but simply to jump straight into our text what I don't want to do again is to make much out of nothing you could come to verse 21 through 23 and 23 especially and say that this is just a simple signing off, just like it was a simple greeting. There's nothing major there. Yet at the same time, if we believe when Paul writes to Timothy that the Word of God is um, what he defines it as and what he instructs us as to it, what it accomplishes, that, that, this, that even these words here have something to say to us. And it is just like a greeting, and just as a greeting may not mean that much to us because it's a simple formality and a proper form of etiquette, and it's seemingly empty to us, doesn't necessitate that that is actually what Paul is trying to, to accomplish here. That it's simple formality or etiquette he's trying to carry out while those things are good and useful. Um, at the same time, we know that all Scripture is God-breathed. It is original source, finds its, or, or the words find its very source in Him. And He breathes all of these things out to us for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we may be the men of God, the women of God, thoroughly furnished for every good work. That, that verse, even verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen, has something to contribute to our sanctification and our holiness and our progress in the Lord. When rightly understood, um, this becomes as a knife and a scalpel to our own hearts, making us into the very image of Jesus Christ. Arguably, this verse, when rightly understood, contains the very treasures of heaven, and when commended to the hearts of men, and rightly received, properly understood, um, can even raise dead men to life. When we understand what the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is. Amen. So Paul signs off. From this letter to the church at Philippi, this precious congregation whom he knows and is, and is even now ministering to him, and, the, and he ministering to them, and he signs off in what we may argue is the most appropriate manner of all. With these words, quote, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Some of you may have translations that actually have somewhat of a variant there. And sound more like this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 
There is a difference. There is somewhat of a nuance. It doesn't change the substance of anything essential within the doctrines of Christianity. Um, And we'll deal with that as we approach that the end of that text um, a little bit later. But the primary substance of this pronouncement here is a note on grace. And this really isn't surprising to us, or shouldn't be surprising. Paul begins the letter with grace, even as he introduces himself. You may remember, if not, you can go to chapter 1, verse 2, and you read these words as Paul signs on to the church at Philippi. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That grace is such a theme in Paul's life and ministry that it literally seeps through his letters so much that many have referred to all of Paul's epistles as a collective unit as the epistles of grace. You'll generally find this grace at the beginning of his letters as well as at the end. It's not universal, um, but you'll also find but, but you will find it sprinkled throughout every letter. And even if it's not explicitly mentioned, that Greek word or that English word there, grace, it's important to know that you should be reading all of Paul's letter and really the whole counsel of God with that concept of grace in the back of your, your mind. But as I said, Paul regularly introduces himself as well as regularly signs off with these words, um, but with some different nuances. For example, in Colossians 4.18, he says this, This salutation by my own hand, Paul, Remember my chains, grace be with you. To Colossae, he says the same thing. Grace be to you. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 21, same thing. Grace be to you. In First Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 23, he signs off like this, with a little difference. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Romans 16, 24, the same thing. A unique and unrepeated form you find in 2 Corinthians 13, 14 where he says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit. He includes the triune God there. He says, be with you all. The grace of Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Spirit be with you all. The grace is contained within all. Amen, he says. And then you actually find that variant form that I said here just a moment ago, in the Spirit, that's not a new um, Variant, or it's not, a, it's not a new concept, even if it's not contained within this text. In Philemon 25, as well as Galatians 6.18, Paul writes these words, Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And what he's arguing for there, which we'll get to again in a few moments, is that the grace of God should be experienced in the innermost being of a man, such that it, that it would pour out into to life. That, that, that grace is to be understood, rightly affected, um, proper affections and attitudes to grow out of it, such that we would act in accordance with that grace. I think it's important, again, to simply say that while these things may be monotonous, mechanical, and simple formalities, proper etiquette to us, I'm going to argue that this was not for Paul. This was more than liturgical. It was more than etiquette, although it was that as well. This was not just a, this was not your typical closing of a letter. In those days, it would have been more like a, from a, from a Greek cultural standpoint, it would have been more of like a farewell. Good luck. What you'll find is that Paul takes the elements of what we would call a formal greeting, just as he does in the introduction and the signing off, that, that his farewell will be somewhat we might call Christianized. It is infused. That Paul takes proper etiquette. And what seeps through in that proper etiquette is the grace of Jesus Christ that says that he conforms it and, and displays and seeks to propagate um, the truth of Christ um, in seeming, seemingly some of the most mundane things. So he chucks the farewell out. He doesn't say simply good luck, but he expresses his desire that grace, the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, would cover their entire lives, their congregation, as well as their ministry. Also, if it was true that this was um, just a simple signing off, then you would see somewhat of a, a monotonous, flat reality among the letters. But you don't see that. You actually see the Apostle Paul, for whatever reason, uniquely um, shaping his his formal closure um, with different words, different um, realities, 
all containing some of the same things, but at the same time, they're, they're somewhat different. So he signs off, not in the way that we often sign off our emails, you know, with an already populated type of closure, um, but he thinks through it, we would argue, and that his language is not just a social custom devoid of mental activity, but it's actually filled with a true desire that the Lord Jesus Christ would extend grace to this people and that the crown of their lives, congregation, and ministry would be just that. That this is Paul's true desire. And it may seem kind of elementary to you this morning, but I really have a simple message for you that will begin with a simple definition of grace. If you're taking notes, I just want to talk to you a minute about what grace is and give you a simple definition of grace. And then we'll move from there. But if you're here with us this morning and you have no understanding of what grace is from a biblical perspective, I would give you this simple definition. And there's a hundred definitions that you can find. And given what text you're looking at and what, what, what portion of God you're, you're, you're discovering or you're, you're, you're investigating and Christ is enlightening you, um, you can go as simple or as complex, as exhaustive, yet as succinct as you might want. But I want to give you just a simple, succinct definition this morning. Because it's important that if, that if Paul is pronouncing grace and it is his desire that grace be upon them, then what in the world do we mean by grace? Grace. Simple definition is this. The undeserved favor of God. The undeserved favor of God. And I want to bring out two dimensions of that this morning. So under that heading, the definition... I want to give you two dimensions or nuances of that grace. Number one is going to be saving grace. When God saves a man, you don't deserve it. Right? That it is God's saving grace is that favor of God, particularly in the salvation of sinners. And that number two, what we're going to find within the Scriptures is sanctifying grace. Not only when God saves you do you not deserve it, but you found this unique favor in God, apart from yourself, holy because He's a gracious God. But two, that, that, that salvation is more than just a legal rendering, a formal declaration that you have eternal life, but that in that saving grace, God gifts you certain things, particularly His Spirit, in which pushes you on, preserves and secures you in such a way, providing you with all the provisions necessary to walk a faithful life and persevere to the end. And you don't deserve that either. And neither do I. Such that when God saves a man and gives a man those things necessary to persevere in faithful obedience with those graces of love and compassion and, and, and holiness and reverence and honor and joy and peace and long-suffering and patience, that those things are rightly yours. But at the same time, they're rightly yours, not because you deserve it, but because of Jesus Christ's work upon the cross, He deserves you. Such that when God saves a man, Jesus Christ has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father. He has been gifted a people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And with those people, those people have been given the Spirit of God such to enable them to give Jesus Christ what He deserves. And that is right, true, willful, and joyful service and worship to Him. So number one, again, saving grace. Saving grace is that favor of God, particularly in the salvation of sinners. 2 Corinthians 8-9 speaks of this kind of, of saving grace. Paul writes this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might become rich. He says in essence, you know that grace? You know what grace is? It's primarily made known to you in the favor that you found in God. And that's evidenced by Jesus Christ giving you saving faith and grace. Such that He becomes poor, which He doesn't deserve. To make you rich, which you don't deserve. You didn't deserve that. That's all of grace. 
It's undeserved favor. Titus chapter 2 and verse number 11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. End quote. That it appeared, that grace appeared in the incarnation, the fleshiness of the Son. That He came and tabernacled, He dwelled among us. That grace existed prior in the person of God, in the triune God. But it was manifested in due time. John 1.14 Who gave Himself for us that He might... Or, sorry, Titus 2.14 Who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. So Christ appears, He dies, He gives Himself for us. Why? To redeem and purify us, to make Him His own special people who would be zealous to serve Him in all of their good works. See, what is that? He said, that's grace. It's undeserved favor that not only God would save us, but that He would make us His own special people and put us to work serving Him, the triune God. That He would even be approachable. That we can come this morning boldly to the throne room of grace. You, know, you wonder how in the world could that happen? I don't feel right and just in, or, 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 or that seems sacred and holy ground. Yet at the same time we recognize that that's exactly what Christ purchased. And we're to come boldly into that. Not pretentiously, but, 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 but wholly seeking after more of that same grace. Also, that the heart and soul of God's saving activity towards men is bound up in Ephesians 2. You know that, that great phrase? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That the pure, unmitigated grace of God, as He extends this gift of salvation, is, is, is undeserved favor. You don't deserve it, it's a gift. You can't earn it as much as you try, not only in this generation, but in generations to come. That if you were given a hundred to a thousand or infinite lifetimes in your current condition, you would not be able to, to earn enough stature with God to stand in His favor to earn it with any ounce or all the pounds in all the world. That you, if you have salvation this morning, you have it in Christ simply because you found favor in His eyes. Grace is the only rationale for the saving activity of God. There's not one reason from a natural perspective that He should save us. You know, not only theologically, doctrinally, biblically, but even experientially, that we are not good, nor are we lovely. We are not righteous, nor are we holy. We do not love light, but we love the darkness. Therefore, we are condemned already. And it is not as if we do it in ignorance. We do it in the face of God in creation as well as our conscience on a daily basis. We rebel against Him. We are hostile. We are enemies of God. The Scriptures say that we come out of the womb speaking lies. Psalm. The psalmist says that given long enough, the fruit of our rebellion will show in spitting in the face of God and, and cultivating an entire life of it. That this is who we are. There's nothing in us. As much as we can, can doctor ourselves up externally and beautify the elements of our rebellion such that they even look attractive to the world and attributes to be considered and pursued, we know that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And that, that when you, that, that, that one day in that state, when we stand before God, we will say, Lord, Lord, look at all that we've done, even in your name. And he'll say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. It was never being, it was never enough. And it would never be enough because you came in and of yourselves. This is why. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 24, Paul refers to the good news of the gospel as the good news, the gospel of the grace of God. For Paul, the gospel was a declaration. For Paul, the gospel was a demonstration of the grace that belongs to God and to God alone. And that he measures it out, not according to partiality upon this person because they're better than another. He, por he portions it out simply because he's gracious. It is holy of him and him alone. And thus he receives all the glory, all the honor and all the praise. 
That, 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 that grace, if you have found it this morning, you have not found it because you were ingenuitive enough, because you were skilled enough, because you were intellectual enough, because you were strong enough, because you were logical enough, because you were rational enough. You found it because God was gracious. And that He pursued you, even in your own rebellion, that He displayed Christ in such a fashion um, to, to, to display His character and nature to you, to change your life, that you may to draw you to Himself. And it's simple enough, simple definition, right? And yet at the same time, grace is one of those things that's not so simple. The simplest mind, yes, can understand it at the core. Boys and girls... Um, you, you have that, 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 that if God wills, it's as simple as that. And God can bring you to Himself. That even such a child can understand. Yet at the same time, we've not been able to truly define it in thousands of years. It is too multifaceted, the Scriptures would say. I love Peter. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 10, quote, he speaks of it as the manifold grace of God. In modern terms, we might say it like this. The many-colored grace of God. Just when you feel like you've seen it all, a new color flashes in God's providence and His supernatural work. As you open the pages of Scripture and you think, I've got grace nailed down. As you wake up in the morning, you lie down at night, you think, I've got God pinned down. I know what grace is. I've experienced it today. But, but then you wake up and His mercies are fresh and new every morning. And then not only in the good things, but in the bad things, you begin to see the grace of God. That it crowns all the activity of life. That, 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 that it is this continual discovery that in our little minds fathom for so long, which is sufficient to cause us to cling to God. But as we continue to pursue and to cling to Him, God continues to enamor with us by pulling back another page in the, in, in the, in the dictionary of the grace of God. His thesaurus is, is infinite when it comes to grace. And He begins to picture for us and magnify in our lives a new nuance. He pulls out the microscope and something that you've seen before and shows us new atoms and, and new particles that are holding together our lives. And as we mature in that grace, we begin to see, yes, more of our sin and how, how, how horrific that it is to God, and that our hearts are tainted, yet at the same time, it magnifies the grace of God as He displays that to us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that again, at the same time, while it's inexhaustible, that's not to say that it's undefinable. God has clearly revealed to us in Scripture that which we need to know Him. And by the power of the Spirit, He shows and, and, and displays that grace to us in, in ineffable ways, but, but also in efficient ways, effective ways, such that we can understand it to a certain point that, that we can be saved. That we can know it in our minds and hearts in such a way that we can say with a full knowledge and assurance this morning that I am His and He is mine. That He has His people and I am one of His. That that's grace. The undeserved favor of God. And that if you are in Christ this morning, you have found it because He found you. You have been drawn because He drew you. And He extended that grace to you. Because of nothing in and of yourself. Um, but by virtue of the work of the Son, by the power of the Spirit, to give Him what glory He deserves. Number two, in that definition, I want to give you a second dimension. Dimension, And that second dimension is the sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace is that undeserved favor extended in the full spectrum of God's provision and gifts to us. That secures our salvation to the end. <clears throat> it is that undeserved favor. Extended in the full spectrum. Of the gifts and provisions that he gives to us. I don't know how many times I quote it. But I find such comfort. In Romans chapter number 8. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him 
also freely give us all things. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Therefore I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because you're good enough. Because you're strong enough. Because you're savvy enough. No, because he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That in the power of the Spirit, in the provisions of God, in salvation, in the, in the, in the, in the new birth, in the, the, the birth of a, a new heart, in that fleshiness, in the Spirit that comes with it, contains the provisions of grace. And that, that, that cause us to walk in newness of life. Not perfectly, but faithfully is our pursuit. And that should be one of the most comforting things for us to learn. I remember working through Romans chapter 8 at a previous church and walking away just totally transformed by the grace of God. I've questioned a lot of things in my life since then, but I've never questioned the love of God and my position in Him. Knowing that, that yes, I may fail, but even when I don't know how to pray, and he, the, the Spirit is praying with groans which cannot be uttered. That when I do not know how to stand to persevere, I've got, a, I've got an advocate at the right hand of God the Father interceding for me. And that when I fail, the Spirit does not. And when I fail, the Son does not. And that He is able to keep that which for, the, 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 those for which He died. That, that, that He provides for us even the grace to walk and the grace to be obedient and the grace to be faithful. And He liberally gives that to all of His children to egg them on in the faith, to conform them to His image, to make them like Christ. That grace which is needed daily to persevere, He extends it to us by the power of His Spirit, particularly through the means of His Word. Through the means of His Word. And that this is a grace you need. You didn't deserve it. But you need it. If you found Christ, you found favor in Him. You just didn't get a legal rendering and a declaration by the judge that you're forgiven. But what you also get, what were given was, was the sufficient material or immaterial needed to, to honor Him and to walk a faithful life. I mean, if anybody struggled with that as well and showed their need of the need of grace to walk faithfully, um, it, it too was the Apostle Paul. As he writes these words, he also writes in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. It's almost like Romans chapter 8. We're, like, don't, don't have the unrealistic expectation that, that opposition is going to come, persecution is not going to come. Listen, we're like sheep to the slaughter, killed all the day long. Like who can persevere? Paul says, they came to me. But lest I should be, that I not be exalted above measure. Even that's grace. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that I might depart from me. And he said this to me. Quote, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, Paul says, I will rather boast in my infirmities. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. That grace here is to be understood as a measure of strength supplied to Paul. In the context of his infirmities and his felt weaknesses. That, that, that even to Satan and this messenger that is coming to buffet him. Is for the believer. Some of those, some of those provisions. In which to humble the Apostle Paul to show him his need of Christ, thus propelling him towards the risen Savior. I love it. And I love, one of the things I love to think about more than anything is Christ upon the cross. 
And how Satan and all the minions of the world um, sought to destroy the plan of God by murdering the Son of God. And with that blow, yes, he's willing, yes, he's voluntary, yes, he's not a victim. He goes like a, like a king upon his throne, willingly laying down his life. Yet at the same time, Satan is used as that instrument um, upon which to bring him to his death, entering into Judas, the conspiring of the Jews in Rome. And yet all of their intellect, skill, rivalry, hatred for the Son of God would be that which secured the salvation of all those who would believe out of every nation, tribe, and tongue that Satan and all the world works their best. And you know what it does? It, it all culminates in the grace of God. That even Satan, as he's working against you, God uses it to extend grace to you immeasurably. Paul, well, what am I to do with this messenger that's buffeting me from Satan? You know what you're to do? You're to recognize your need of grace. And you'd even glorify God in that. Not that he was somewhat sadistic or, 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 or enjoyed the pain, but it was that, that the, very, the very principle of pain, opposition, persecution that brought him to his needs to show him his need of Christ. And that which Satan devised for evil, God meant for good. And thus, Paul recognizes his need of grace. His need of grace. That yes, the Word of God is given to you to propagate that grace. That in it contains the grace. It steeps grace. And at the same time, we recognize that so many providential things and circumstances God is organizing to show us our need of Him. And in that, we must recognize too that God is gracious. That God is truly gracious. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that, that grace is from God. It's undeserved. You didn't deserve that. Paul, you know what? You don't deserve a messenger from Satan. I know that's what Paul was saying a lot. <laughs> like, I don't deserve this. But not in the way that he thought. Like, it was a gift in some sense. Again, not to say that, you know, we enjoy those things. Not to say that, that, that Satan's not responsible. Not to say that evil um, will not give an account one day for the arrogance of the heart and the rebellion against God. But that is the inexhaustive um, nature of God and the, the, the things that we can't wrap around our mind. How God uses um, these very things that are in opposition to Him to even bring Him glory. Um, and, and, and Paul reconciles in his own mind that, that that was just grace. That God allowed that in his life. Um, because it, because it taught him something that only providence could teach you, and that is your true need of grace, and that that was gracious, um, and that that grace, Philippians chapter four verse twenty three, Paul roots in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is that that Christ is the ultimate and only source of grace that you'll find in this world, not only for the saving of your soul but for the daily Christian walk of faithfulness and perseverance. It is in Him that we move and live and have our being. To Him be the glory and honor. For this grace comes by Him and through Him and to Him in all things. Number two, I want to give you not only the definition of grace, but the direction of this grace. Um, Paul says in Philippians chapter number four, as I had read earlier and mentioned, um, that it be with you all. I thought you said there was a variant. What I mean by variant is, is that there are some manuscripts and there are some translations that actually have a different rendering there. I think the ESV and the NAS um, actually translate that, be with your spirit or be with you all. It could go either way. Either way, there's no major, again, doctrinal problem. Um, but just before we get into that, I, I do want to say that in the substance of this that that, that this is a pronouncement of grace. That um, actually when you go to the original, the, the, there's actually, this is not good English. Paul was not a good Englishman. Um, he was not, you know, his vocabulary, his sentence structure, um, he often waxed eloquent. He didn't use periods, no punctuation, no capitalization. Sometimes all capitalization. Um, he was a homeschool nightmare. You can imagine, you know, um, but he was a mind above men, right? I mean, he was, and he was used of God in supernatural ways. And, and we, have to, we have to wrestle with the fact that, yeah, like we have stringent um, things at home for our children, yet the Spirit of God inspired this. So, so take it with him, the, 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 the lack of punctuation. And no verbs, no verbs in this, this um, sentence. 
So grace be with you all. We supply that. We supply the be with you. Um, why? But simply what, what, what Paul is actually saying is Paul is just he's pronouncing grace upon them. I mean, it's not it's, it could be a prayer. It's probably not a prayer. He actually prays for them previously um, that Paul is actually simply pronouncing something grace to you. Um, but, but, but not grace be to you, not grace be upon you, not grace will be upon you, not a hope that grace is upon you, but grace to you. Um, it's similar to Luke chapter 10 and verse number 5. You don't need to turn there. But our Lord Jesus Christ is talking to the disciples there and He says, whatever house you enter into, first say, peace to this house. And if you have the Son of Peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. So as they go out and come and they, they go into a house, they're, they're to make an authoritative pronouncement, the peace and prosperity on the home that comes from God and from God alone. That if a son of peace is there and peace is, is pronounced, um, then when they receive it, they receive a blessing. I mean, it's not conferred unilaterally upon a person. He actually says if they're not there, then there's no peace with them. Right? Turn and, and go away. But if they're there, and you pronounce peace, then it is peace to them. They actually receive a blessing. Um, that when there is proper spiritual state of mind and, and heart, the pronouncement is not just, a, just an empty greeting, is what I'm saying. But becomes a vehicle through which God works and confers the thing which is actually pronounced. That words are important. They carry with them concepts and realities. And that when it is pronounced upon them, it is a reality always already in existence. That God can actually use that to profit them internally and be a blessing to their souls. So what else? What do you mean by that? When, well, when Paul pronounces grace upon all, all or in their spirit, he does it in a way that if there are believers under the hearing of God's Word there at, at Philippi, on the day of the reading on the Lord's Day, that, that, that God by His Spirit would use those words as instruments to confer the joy of knowing Christ and the grace of saving knowledge and the grace of sanctifying grace, um, of Him being reconciled to God the Father to comfort their hearts, to strengthen their faith, and to conform them into the very image of God. And what I'm saying is, is that when I say to you as a believer, grace to you, and you rightly receive it, and it draws to your mind Christ Himself, that even in that simple statement, um, God can work in such a way to pour grace out upon you. Even this morning, that if I read Philippians chapter number 4, grace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ, that if you have a right understanding and you have been received that grace, then that in and of itself draws to mind Jesus Christ in ineffable ways, in a multifaceted number of ways, such that if you receive it, what a blessing it is. I don't know if you've ever had somebody do that to you. You know, I used to think how empty it was while I'm there struggling with the faith. You know, thinking about abandoning a whole host of things, just being discouraged. And somebody comes and says, brother, grace to you. And how convicting that can be if you have a right understanding of what grace is. Or he says, believe on the Lord. I already know that. Why are you telling me that? Yet at the same time, when a heart is rightfully humble before the Lord, all that is contained within that word floods the mind and grace is extended even in that moment to strengthen you and to put you um, back on the road of faithfulness. So that's what Paul's doing. He's pronouncing grace. In some sense, his desire, but he's, he's seeking to confer grace to them through Jesus Christ and all that he's accomplished. So he directs it toward them. Who? To all of them. And possibly to their spirits. Again, the, the, there's that, that, that variant. It could be there, it couldn't be there. But I'm going to give it to you anyway. Why? Because I know that it's in Philemon 25, and I know that it's in Galatians chapter 6. So it's not anti-scriptural. But what could he be saying here? He could be pronouncing that grace not only be upon them all, but also to be in their spirit. That word spirit there um, is the word that speaks for the inner man. 1 Corinthians 2.11 For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Luke chapter 1 and verse 46 Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. And... My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. That when, that when Paul is pronouncing grace or desires for them to be blessed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, he actually directs it toward the heart of a man. 
and the soul of a man, that which is in a man, that God, that, that, that Paul desires for you to understand in the innermost being, experientially, practically, um, what it is to know grace. He wants you to truly know it. Not only to exercise it, not only to ascend to it, uh, not only to know it in your brain, but to know in the depths of your soul, in your spirit, such that it may exercise its influence upon you in your deepest thoughts, your feelings, and your will. That your whole inner being would be a life steeped in grace, and from that grace would be um, the right actions, the proper attitudes, um, the right activity. Even this morning in the Sunday school hour, Matthew chapter 6 is exactly what we talked about. What you had was a religious group of men who were steeped in religion, even the right religion. They had the law, they had the Old Testament, they had the prophets, they had the fathers, they had everything that you would think, man, that's gracious. Yet at the same time, it became the, 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 the knife to their throat and the nail in their coffin. Why? Because they misused it because they didn't understand grace. Therefore, no one could pray like them. Therefore, no one would give like them. Therefore, no one would fast as long as them. Yet it was all a simple show to be seen of men. And, 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 and what must happen in those beatitudes is that God must work a work in the spirit of a man to humble his heart such that the activity of the faithful saint grows out of that. Paul desires for them to be a church, um, not only with their hands, but a church and, and children of God at heart. That they would have grace disseminated to them with a right understanding in their inner being. And that's where the wellspring of love and joy and peace and all those things overflow in praise and activities, self-denial, and a whole host of other work, the work of God. Number three, um, not only do we see grace defined, not only do we see um, grace directed, but thirdly, we see grace desired. Grace desired. I do think that as we reflect upon this verse, we should ask ourselves, yes, maybe it's not a prayer request, but there's no doubt Paul prayed for this. Right? There's no doubt that, grace, that, that Paul desired for grace to be extended to the Philippian saints in such a measure that is incalculable. Again, you know, we, we, so we could ask the question, what was Paul's aim in this statement? And I think it's relatively simple. Paul desires that this grace both saving and sanctifying grace, would abound in the hearts of all the people of God at Philippi. And that same grace would be the foundation upon which all their faithful activity is built. That the people at Philippi need to know, they need to believe, they need to experience the grace of Christ. And His truth in such a way that it motivates them to faithfulness, to courage, to love, to holiness, and a whole host of other affections and activities. Thus, He begins the epistle with grace. He peppers it all through with grace. And He ends it with grace. He wants to remind them of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? So that would be the foundation of all of their activity in Christ. And it would give value to every single attitude, every affection, everything that they did. That grace is to be the foundation, the crown of the Christian life. It is to permeate the life of a believer in every area of life. Every area. Every area. The, the, the grace of God is to permeate the life of a believer in every area of life. It is to be that foundation in Philippians 1 upon which the epistle is built, the life is built, and it is to be that which crowns the top. Every single activity, every word throughout the book of Philippians um, is to be crowned with grace. And so is your life. Now this letter and the Apostle Paul is a perfect example of that. You know, and just to remind you of the letter if you've not been with us. We took it as somewhat of our thesis statement. It could be wrong. But I think that the thrust of the letter um, is almost found in, is possibly found in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. The first command that we reach in the entire book after an introduction and a report from the Apostle Paul himself says these words, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, not terrified in any way by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For you it has been granted to, on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. 
having the same conflict which was, you saw in me and now here is in me. That Paul is arguing that at the end of life when they stand before God, it's going to be like a balance to the scales. Right? And that for which Christ died, Christ should receive. And that doesn't only extend in a one-time appointment of salvation or a receipt of Christ, but in a whole life of striving together, even in the midst of opposition um, and suffering. That it was granted to them to believe, but also to suffer. And they were to stand fast in one spirit, that the grace of God is to be extended and permeate not only that one day in receipt of Christ, but all of salvation. And again, Paul's the perfect example of that. Paul's chief desire is that the people of God would be living in a manner consistent with the implications of what Christ accomplished. So Jesus did something, Jesus should receive something. He went to, similar to going to Lowe's or wherever it is you do your shopping. You buy something. You put a certain amount into it. What do you expect to receive? That for which you purchase. Right? The same with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ dies for a people. What he accepts is a people for him zealous in good works. Thus, the gospel is that which affects every area of our life and that our lives are to be shaped and driven by the gospel in which we both trust and treasure. Therefore, everything we do, everything we think, everything we feel, and everything we say must be thoughts, felt, said in Christ because of grace. It's to be done in light of that truth, both literally and spiritually. Not only our hands, but the motivation of our hearts are to be affected by grace. That you should be able to draw a straight line from every aspect of your lives to Jesus Christ. See, that sounds impossible. It is without grace. It is. And this is not only the message of the letter, but this is the message of the letter because it's the pattern of Paul's life. Right? Why would Paul say this other than this is what Paul believes? Yes, it is the Spirit of God um, giving us the Word of God, yet at the same time, he's using the Apostle Paul's heart, truly ministering to them. And Paul, this is somewhat of a biography of Paul's life um, in much of Philippians. That Paul is sharing with you his heart and his message. And that as he says, yes, God speaks, but at the same time, when he says to live as Christ and die as gain, he truly means it. When he says things like, I count all things as lost for Jesus Christ. Yes, it is the word of God and it is what we should strive after. Yet at the same time, it is truly Paul giving his heart there as he desires to suffer for his name's sake and to know him in the power of his resurrection. Yet at the same time, we look at that and we think, man, we want the big things like that. You know, we go to conferences and mission conferences and sit before sermons and read Bibles and look at biographies and we read of men who have these great statements and these crowning achievements in life and we say that that's true Christian experience. That's, that's the pinnacle of what we ought to be. We look at Paul and we say, we want that. Yet at the same time, we're not willing to, to, to labor with Paul in the little things. That, that big things are built upon little things. That crowning grace is built upon foundational grace. Right? And that the, the Paul at Philippi and Paul the Apostle was not just a giant in the faith because he had a magnificent one-two punch. Paul was the man that he was and he expressed the desire that he did because Paul was faithful in the daily things. Volumes could be written about all of the mundane activity that Paul accomplished there in the jail and outside of it that you'll never read about. Waking up daily and lying down and suffering through so many things. All the people that he witnessed to. All of the, all of the days he sought to abandon yet he did not. All of the discipleship that went on. All the sermons that you've never read or heard. Ones of which he wished would be taken off of sermon audio, right? Or, or some, other, some other thing that, that, that he was faithful in the little things. That he was a true disciple. There's no doubt in my mind that that's a reality. Why? Because the book of Philippians is just, just, just the grace of God in Paul's life in the book of Philippians as well as throughout his other letters is just paramount not only in the big things but the little things. Right? What you can see when you read this with a close eye and a microscope 
and you take your eye off the forest and you get to the trees, you realize that the, the, the forest is actually be, made because of the trees, what you begin to see are these little acts of devotion and these little things that just permeate Paul's writing in his life that you might think is insignificant. But what you begin to see is that actually Paul was just enamored by Jesus Christ in all areas. And the little things. You know why? You know, so he includes Jesus Christ in his introduction. He reframes it. It's not empty, right? Like he puts Christ in there three times. He takes what is a cultural greeting and a cultural signing off and he transforms it. Why? Because he thought that Jesus Christ was worthy to be made known even in formal etiquette things, right? Like it affected the way that he thought, the way that he would greet a brother, the way that he would greet a sister, the way that he would do this or that. Um, it was changed by Jesus Christ. The way that he sat down and wrote a letter was significantly different than anybody else in the time, right? The Greek culture and even the Christians had a certain way of writing and, 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 and Christ permeated. He took everything that he could and used it as a platform to display Jesus Christ. Read his thank you note in chapter 4. It was, it's, it's, it's some of the highest theology on Christian contentment and, and Christian giving that you'll ever find, you know? And what did he do? He couched it in a thank you note. Something that we'll just write, you know, so that we don't get in trouble with, with the rest of the church because it's proper etiquette. You know what Paul does? Paul sees it so significant, this seemingly mundane thing and this proper form of etiquette, and he does it for the glory of God such that we're reaping the reward. Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 19. You know what he says? He says, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. And he goes on to speak that of... of, of of how the, the, his travel plans are determined by God himself. He says in verse 24, But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall come to you shortly. That when Paul gets on a camel, and when Paul gets on a, on a donkey, whatever, he's leaving that up to the Lord. He cannot speak a word, do an action, without recognizing that Jesus Christ is Lord, not over his evangelistic endeavors and his church planting engagements, Go on every area of life such that he goes to the nth degree not to hurt a brother in his thank you note. Thinking that he was ungrateful. You know, the, the, the key to Paul's life was that grace was the foundation of it. And it was the crowning, acti- it was the, the crowning um, uh, grace upon everything that he did. He, he, everything was formed and fashioned in the uttermost parts of his life by Jesus Christ. The time that he got up, I almost think he thought, I've got to wake early to serve the Lord. I've got to get a good night's rest. Why? Because tomorrow's coming. I can't watch that. I can't engage with that. This I do and this I don't. And this, Paul, why did you do it that way? Because I want to serve and honor the Lord. It seems so insignificant. It seems like something that could just be cast aside. But what you see contained within these letters is that Paul is so consumed with Jesus Christ that it actually, it, it goes to every area of his life because Jesus, he considers Jesus Christ King. Martin Lloyd-Jones says he cannot speak a last word to anybody except in terms of Christ. He does not waste a word. And I imagine that he writes this letter the way that he does. Why? Because this was his common practice in those days. And he does it with all of it. No doubt when he greeted a brother. No doubt when he left a brother. No doubt when he changed his travel plans. He did it all for the Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, There's nothing I always feel about this great epistle which is more interesting than to observe in detail the way in which the apostle does everything. You know? When you have this perspective, it is so enlivening. Because it means that not only do the great things mean something, but when grace is bestowed upon the little things, they mean just as much. You know what it makes? You know what it means? It means that little guys like us, little gals like us, little boys, little girls, men, women, whom volumes will never be written down, their acts of, of, of gracious activity, the grace of God, their acts of faithfulness toward God, because He was King, will be laid up in heaven. Treasure will be there, and it will echo throughout eternity. Why? Because you woke up in the middle, and you carried that baby for two hours for the glory of God. And those tears that you wept, 
day in and day out for the salvation of your children like no one will ever see but God does. You know? And that God has given you those things as grace upon your life. Men, you go to a career and you think that it's just mundane and you're wasting your life. Know that when grace is extended in those areas of life, that, that they actually have eternal character, which will reign and echo throughout all eternity. Books will never... Every thought, every action, every deed. Everything to Seemingly, everything meant something. That was Paul's desire. You know what, I, Paul, you know what my desire is in extending grace to you this morning? Is that you too would understand that the grace of God is not only saving but sanctifying. And that it is undeserved favor. And that while it may seem impossible this morning to live a life that is, that is honoring to God, know that His grace is available to all who believe. That yes, I know that it seems extremely difficult. And yes, we live with our indwelling sin. And yes, it deceives us. And yes, there is Satan that, that buffets us. And yes, there is persecution and affliction that comes from all ages. But if He gave you His Son, church, how shall He not freely give you all things? These things are little. The, the, the power and the grace to get up and to, to lead a family, it makes everything matter and it makes everything possible. That men, you must recognize that as you're beating your head against the wall because you don't know how to, to lead your home or to raise up a family or how to love your wife, know that there is grace there to teach you how. That there is grace there to empower you to love your wife like Christ loved the church. And ladies, when, when you're just at your nth degree and, and, and you're, just tears are flowing, you don't know what to do and you're questioning whether you should have been a mother at all or a wife at all or what you're doing with your life, know that there is grace for you. As much as Christ, look at the cross and see the extent of love that He would go for sinners like us. How will He not also supply you with all that you need to honor Him? Like you can and you will, and some of you are. Even in your, your, in, your seemingly thinking, your inability and the, the, the impossible nature of it, some of us look into your lives and we see Christ and Christ forevermore. So be encouraged. And, and through that activity, it's changing us, making us more like Christ. Man, you're wondering whether or not you should be where you ought to be in a career or in a, a stage of life or whatever, you go in just beating your head against the wall, wondering if you, you have the, another day that, or the strength to wake up another day and to go in with all of the mess that it is, know that His grace is sufficient for you. Some of you have health issues or, or your health issues are on the rise or they're coming a week from now or two weeks from now or two years from now and you're going to wonder whether or not God loves you. You're going to wonder whether or not if you should just throw in the towel and give it up. You're going to question and whether, whether you should be angry with God or whether, whether you should. And people are going to come by and they're just going to say some of the dumbest things. And they're going to be. But, but, but know this. His grace is sufficient for you. And that all that you encounter in your life in some sense could be summed up in this grace to you. And that grace is summed up in Jesus Christ. Thus, if we are to find that grace, we are to find Christ. This morning, I pray, there may be a pronouncement of grace to you. But, but it, all it is is an empty word if it's devoid of Jesus Christ. Thus, the grace is extended to you in Christ. And not only do we see that in the crowning exposition of the letter, nor at the beginning, or and at the beginning, but you also see it all throughout. You say, well, where do you see grace? You see it in Christ. You know, one of the great themes of this book that we have not really brought out that I would just encourage to you this morning <clears throat> is the theme of Christ. The theme of Christ. And one reason we've not brought it out is because it's not the subject of one particular text. And as we went through the trees, we've almost also lost the forest and burned it down without Christ. But when you read the book of Philippians, you know what you find? You find that out of the 104 verses, I think, there are 73, 74 different references to Jesus Christ, either explicitly or in personal pronouns. 65 of those or so direct um, references 
to him, his work, and all that he's accomplished. That what Paul does here, constantly throughout, again, is not what any homeschool child should do. Utilize the same word every two out of three sentences. It seems redundant, but that was the echo of Paul's heart. That was the theme of his life. So inspired by the pen, but moved in his inner man, um, because of the grace that was extended to him, he fills four chapters of a letter with nothing more than Jesus Christ. He begins in one one with, with Paul and Timothy being slaves of Christ. He goes into chapters 2 and 3 being the treasure and the pursuit of Christ. You read throughout the book of them being they're finding their joy in Christ, His glory in Christ, standing firm in Christ, and harmony in Christ. But the summation of grace this morning, the, the even a more succinct definition, when you say, well, how do you define grace? It's undeserved favor. Yes. But in some sense, we may just say, all of Christ. That you have found that undeserved favor. When you find Christ, you know it's undeserved. And when you find Christ, you know that He deserves your life, your obedience, your honor, your worship. And thus you render it to Him. But what is my hope for you this morning? My hope for you is that you would know Christ and all of His grace. That today, if you are here without Christ, you're outside of Him. And this is nothing more than just, just five ink blots on a page. My prayer for you is that you would see Him in all of His glory this morning. That God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in ages past determined to do the impossible, seemingly impossible and unthinkable, send His only Son willingly to take upon Himself human flesh. Why? So that He could fulfill the original mandate, become the Adam that He would not be, and become Israel that He could not, obeying the law in all points and doing all that Adam should have done but would not do, um, accruing a righteousness so that when He dies, you can be forgiven of all your sins and that you can be accounted righteous for Christ's sake. And when you stand before Him on that day because you have believed and repented of your sins and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can stand full, firm, and fast. Why? Because you do not stand in your own righteousness. You stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How did you get it? I don't know. You don't deserve it. You got it because He's gracious. And if you're here this morning um, and a believer... My hope is for you that you would just live in that grace for the rest of your life, right? That the book of Philippians actually is not written to sinners that are lost, but the saints that are saved who need to recognize their desperate need of Christ. That we don't move on from these elementary things. That Christ is the whole book. And thus, that is where we spend our time. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glory that we have in Christ. Father, nothing to boast in, nothing to brag about. But Father, much to glory in. Because Jesus Christ is much. Father, we pray this morning that you would just use our time together to magnify your Son, to edify the saints, Father, and to bring in sinners into the family of God. Father, that is the desire. Father, we trust you to do what you will and for you to accomplish the word. Father, because we know that we can. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing. Can we do in Christ? I pray that you find some rest in Christ today. You're dismissed.